welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Dylan Pommen, executive editor and research fellow here at the Acton Institute, sits down with Kevin Schmeising, director of research at the Freedom and Virtue Institute and co-author and editor of the newly released Race and Justice in America. They discuss cultural tensions stemming from race and justice issues, the civil rights and Black Lives Matter movements, and how to move forward in a peaceful and unified manner. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act Online on our website at actonorg slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Act in Line. I am Dylan Pommen, a research fellow at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Kevin Schmeising, who is director of research at the Freedom and Virtue Institute. Uh, He teaches church history for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati's Lay Ecclesial Ministry Program and appears weekly on EWTN Catholic Radio Network's Sunrise Morning Show. Uh, He is the author and editor of several books, including most recently, Race and Justice in America, uh, which he edited, but also, uh, by looking at the table of contents, uh, in many ways co-authored. Uh, Kevin, thank you for joining us. I'm excited to talk about the book. My pleasure, Dylan. Nice to talk to you again. So uh, the subtitle of the book is The Civil Rights Movement, Black Lives Matter, and The Way Forward. Uh, I presume then that the book was sparked by recent news events, recent occurrences, recent protests, and um, efforts uh, from a variety of angles to interpret um, what to do about situations of whether it's police violence or perceived or, you know, real inequalities regarding race in America. Um, How does this book relate to your work at the Freedom and Virtue Institute and their mission? Yeah, well, uh, Ismail Hernandez is uh, the mastermind, I guess you could say, behind the Freedom and Virtue Institute. He founded it back in 2009, and it uh, was very much Acton Institute inspired, I think you could say. Ismail was taken by the ideas that Acton was promoting, and he wanted to take those down to the practical street level, if you will. And um, so he began, well, he had already been working a lot in African-American ministry and black ministry, and also in inner city environments uh, with troubled youth, with marginal youth. And so he wanted to test Acton's ideas in this in this real life laboratory, I guess you could say. Um, and so he founded FVI with an aim of um, promoting the ideas of American freedom and opportunity, self-reliance um, to people coming out of challenging socioeconomic backgrounds. And so I think you can see the way in which the entire theme of this book, Race and Justice, relates to that project. Now, Ismail's kind of unique in that he's focused in his day-to-day life and working with those who are in need. Um, And yet he's also a brilliant thinker, extremely well-read. He's read deeply in uh, the literature of race, of uh, from both conservative progressive, as well as Marxist perspectives. And so he brings all of that 
intellectual ammunition uh, to the table, as well as his practical experience in actually working with um, blacks, other people of color who who are struggling uh, to get ahead in the American environment. So that's, I guess you could say, the background, the genesis of the book. Okay. Um, so in his foreword, Robert Woodson talks about uh, the the contested nature of the definitions of race and justice. Uh, and given, you know, their presence in the title of the book and the, the topic of the book, uh, what what are the, the definitions that this book presumes or uh, is advocating in terms of how we understand these discussions in terms of um, not only our present moment, but American history? Right. Okay. Big question. Let me try to take those in turn. Then you can ask follow-ups as necessary. Um, So we don't really dive deep into the definitional question of race so much as deal with the question of how race is used, especially in the contemporary American context. And so Ismail is very concerned with um, the problem that, as he sees it, the problem that there's an overemphasis on race, um, and this in any number of ways, but uh, you can think, you know, a common sort of example is the focus on, some might say obsession with diversity. Uh, This is anywhere from from education to corporate boardrooms to, uh, you know, to nonprofit organizations, the idea that uh, diversity is good, number one, but, but not even so much that, but that it's a certain kind of diversity, right? And so uh, race or ethnicity is the sole or at least one of those modes of diversity that is at the, the very top of the food chain and other kinds of diversity don't matter. Um, so that's one of the concerns that if, if, if race is going to kind of be king in this quest for diversity, why is that the case? Let's, let's examine that premise. Um, <clears throat> and Ismail says that this is not, not only is this not helpful, but it can actually be damaging um, because, uh, well, there's a somewhat famous quote, I think, that comes from Chief Justice John Roberts, which we cite in one of our chapters that he wrote in a 2007 decision. He said, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Right. So right. the idea there is that is that it's, it's not that we have not enough focus on race, not enough discussion of race, that, but that we have too much focus on race uh, hmm. to the exclusion of, of what is common among human beings. And that's another big focus for Ismail, for all of us at FBI, is is focusing on what we hold in common across all human beings of every ethnicity, uh, background, race, socioeconomic status. Uh, There are certain things we hold in common. This is, again, you know, a fundamental act and idea, right? The Imago Dei, that we're, we're made in the image of God, and that is most fundamentally what we hold in common. So that's a little bit about race. Uh, now, the second point, justice. We do say a little bit more about uh, or focus a little more on the definitional question of justice. In particular, Ismail has a chapter on social justice. Mm-hmm. And here we're we're operating out of the traditional Judeo-Christian natural law, Aristotelian Thomas tradition, right? Um, which is also, again, a commonality with what the Acton Institute does. And so we're focused on justice as a personal virtue. It's a striving toward the ideal, the aim of giving to each person what is their due. And so justice does involve a kind of, not egalitarianism, a concern with equality. It's a concern with equality because it's treating everyone equally in the sense that 
everyone has access or ought to have, have access or ought to be given what is their due. So in that sense, it's treating everyone equally, but it's not an ideological egalitarianism that says everyone therefore ought to be treated the same or everyone is due the same. And so everyone should receive the same things, right? That's not necessarily true. So it's a, it's a concern with, with equality within a larger context of potential inequality and inequality is not equal to injustice. And that's one of the big errors or lies of, of contemporary or some would say progressive or liberal understandings of justice. So those are some of the concerns that are animating at least a few of the chapters there. So you'd say maybe, uh, you know, equality before the law versus an equality of outcome in terms of, uh, you know, especially economics or socioeconomic uh, status. Yeah, that would be another way of putting it. Sure. Um, so your first chapter and the first chapter of the book is on uh, the civil rights movement. And I think it's really helpful as uh, an academic myself uh, to put things in their historical context. So um, how does uh, what we know about uh, the black experience in America and particularly perhaps in the 20th century in the civil rights movement uh, inform our understanding of things like uh, Black Lives Matter on the one hand or, um, you know, pushes for um, diversity and inclusion on the other. Uh, how, how, does, how does that help us get maybe a clearer picture on what the stakes are, what really matters, and who, who is perceiving things in what way? So one of the ways to conceive this book is as a kind of critique of the contemporary civil rights movement or where it's gone, at least in its mainstream manifestations. And so if we're going to do that, you know me, Dylan, as a historian, I always want to know the historical background to what we're talking about in the present, because I think it uh, lends insight in exactly the way you're describing. And so that was the rationale for that first chapter, which is, I think, what you're implying. But to get at the answer to that, let me focus first just a little bit on the second chapter, which is one of Ismail's chapters. And there, he identifies two what he calls streams or narratives around race in American history. And he calls the first one the personalist or integrative. And this is a an emphasis on individual dignity. I mentioned earlier the Imago Dei, mm -hmm. individual, uh, uh, sorry, personal dignity, individual identity, and personal freedom. And here the, the basic idea as it relates to the American political system or culture more generally is that American culture is not fundamentally inherently racist. The constitutional order is not fundamentally or inherently racist or systematically or at least intractably systematically racist. It's fundamentally sound. It's something we can work within to clean up you know, the problems that we have. Um, so that's the personalist stream. And then there's the dialectical or separationist stream where the individual is subsumed within the goals of the group. The emphasis here is not so much on personal dignity as it is on loyalty and deference to the group. And the individual's dignity comes from attachment to that group. And so it places the blame on groups, the blame for problems on groups or structures rather than on individuals. That also means that responsibility attaches to groups and structures rather than individuals. And so this is what gives us the idea that you know, American culture, the American constitutional order are fundamentally unsound, um, corrupt from the beginning, and therefore need to be completely overthrown. So why do I introduce the history part with that? Because I think that's essentially what we see 
those two streams or narratives fighting for supremacy over the course of the entire civil rights movement. Mm. And my focus in my history is on what is often called the classic civil rights movement. That's the 50s and 60s. That's what everyone talks about. That's what you read in the textbooks, right? Mm -hmm. It's Martin Luther King Jr. It's, uh, you know, it's the the march on Selma. It's the march in Washington. It's it's all of that. It's the civil rights. It culminates with the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 65, all of that stuff that, that most people who know a little American history are familiar with. But the civil rights movement goes back much earlier than that. You could even talk about abolitionism, you know, in the pre-Civil War era as being part of the civil rights movement and then continues through into the 20th century and the 20s and 30s and then builds into the 50s and 60s. And all throughout that, you can see this tension between, again, to use Ismail's terms, the personalist versus the dialectical. Um, You could also see this as reformist versus revolutionary. That would be another terminology you could apply to it. So is there going to be, is there going to be a recognition that the American project is basically sound. We can find a way to work within the system to make it better, um, to do away with slavery, first of all, uh, to do away with segregation, secondly, to do away with um, systematic discrimination against Black people, or is what is needed a revolution, an overturning of the constitutional order? Um, Are Blacks fundamentally not welcome and not at home in American culture? Do we need some kind of separationist movement? And I think, and this is what I argue in my history, um, which is, I don't think too controversial, that in the 50s and 60s, it was largely the personalist, the integrative, the reformist dimension of the movement that had supremacy. This is what Martin Luther King represented. Um, And that that was largely successful, that they, to a large extent, achieved the aims they were uh, they were targeting. Now, of course, you know, this process is never completely finished. It never will be this side of the kingdom, but it was largely successful. And that eventually over the course of the sixties and then continuing into the seventies and eighties, the other wing of the movement, the, the dialectical gradually, uh, gained the upper hand. And this has been less successful and in some ways has actually been retrogressive. Um, it's taken us uh, back before the fifties and sixties in some ways. Uh, how would you say, you know, this is something maybe I'm not entirely covered by the book, but in a, an important transition there would be uh, the Great Society program. Would you say that's more the personalist or the revolutionary current uh, taking form? Yeah, the Great Society. So you're right. We don't really cover that in the book, although we do talk a lot about the fallout from the Great Society. So mm-hmm. I guess what I would say is the Great Society can be seen as the beginning of the rise uh, or the beginning of the swing toward uh, the dialectical or separationist narrative um, because it begins to unravel those features of black experience that were at the foundation of the successes of the 50s and 60s. So what I mean by that in particular, I'm thinking about the dynamism, the soundness of the black family. Okay, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, the 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 strength of black family life and black neighborhoods and black uh, unity. This was one of the foundation stones, um, indispensable foundation stones for uh, the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and its successes. 
Um, and I think with the Great Society, and this, you know, the, you know this story, Dylan. It's been well documented in all kinds of works on the Great Society and its aftermath. That um, for the most part, probably unwill, un, unwittingly and well intentioned, um, just the way that the social welfare programs of the Great Society were structured, it ended up resulting in perverse incentives that broke down the black family in an attempt to uplift blacks and other, you know, people of uh, disadvantaged backgrounds an attempt to uplift them out of poverty. It ended up uh, torpedoing the strength of, of the black family, which was a much more lasting foundation um, for uplift out of poverty. And so again, to refer back to what I suggested earlier, it kind of sent us back in the wrong direction. Mm. Now I was really interested to, to discover as you, uh, reading through the book, there's a lot of nuance here in that um, this isn't this isn't a partisan work. You know, it's not just kind of regurgitating. Well, okay, if the left wants, you know, the the kind of revolutionary sort of thing, well, what we're going to do is we're going to say, well, there's not really a problem here. You know, we we live in a, a post-racial, colorblind reality, uh, and that's not really the position you guys take at all. So, what is what is the sort of you know, for lack of a better term, third way, you know, advocated uh, in terms of some of these very real concerns, whether it be violence, specifically with regard to encounters with uh, law enforcement um, or, you know, issues of economic uh, disparities in terms of inequalities, um, problems with, uh, you know, criminal justice. uh, If you look at um, sentencing, those sorts of things, how do you view yourself as continuing that personalist current? And, and who else might there be today uh, who's doing that work? Yeah, okay. I really appreciate that question. That's insightful, Dylan. In fact, uh, that's one of the things I was going to say about the motivation for this book is I think there's uh, some some might ask the question, you know, why why another book on race? Right? We've got <laughs> we've got plenty of books on race. Yeah. Um, and I I think there's kind of even with all the books on race, I think there's an underserved audience out there, and exactly the way you say. So we've got kind of intellectual scholarly books on race. There's a whole, there's a vast scholarship uh, on race and the history and the philosophy and the sociology and all of that um, geared toward an academic audience. And then you've got the um, the stuff that's more partisan. I think you use that term, um, polemical, you might say, populist. This is, you might call it re- the red meat, right? And there's a lot of that, a lot of that stuff out there also. So we tried to do something different from both of those. We wanted to be sophisticated and nuanced. We wanted to draw on the scholarship that's there, but also reach this middle audience um, that's not interested in the red meat, but is is interested in actually being informed and is interested in reflection on these, informed reflection on these these topics. and so that's that's what we hope to do, and it's encouraging that that you notice that in the book. So, <laughs> so then so then the question is, you know, what what does that mean? So, what's an example of that? Well, this is this is again, I think, where Ismail's personal story is is really interesting and helpful. Now, there's not so much of Ismail's personal story in this book. I and mean, if you want that, there's another book. It's called Not Tragically Colored, which is his whole personal story mm-hmm. interlaced with all of his philosophical and sociological and philosophical, uh, sorry, sociological and philosophical stuff. Um, <clears throat> but it's still there. And, and it um, influences the way that Ismail 
um, approaches this whole subject matter. So what I mean is this, that Ismail is not naive at all when it comes to the reality of racism and the continuing reality of prejudice, discrimination, and racism. He's experienced it personally. He's also widely read in the history of slavery, uh, worldwide slavery, as well as American slavery. And so he's under no illusions about uh, just how abusive and horrible the institution of slavery was. He's under no illusions about the long lasting and tremendous negative effect that had on the black community in the United States. He grew up in Puerto Rico, but he spent, uh, what is it, maybe the last three decades or so in the United States. And as I say, has personally experienced uh, racism. You know, he's been called racial epithets. So mm -hmm. again, no illusions about the reality of racism. But the really the key question is, how are we going to respond to that, right? So we can all agree slavery was terrible. I don't think there's too many Americans at this point in time who think slavery was okay, you know, not really that bad. I don't think there's too many Americans who think racism is okay at this point. I'm sure you can find them, but that's not really where the action is. Where the action is, what are we going to do with this at this point in time? How are we going to respond to that? And that's where I think Ismail's approach is really helpful because he admits that there is this past and there is this present of racism. There are going to be obstacles. There are obstacles in everyone's life, whether you're black, white, or, or any other race, everyone faces obstacles. And the question is, what are you going to do with those obstacles? Are you going to let them, um, are you going to let them diminish your dignity and completely turn you aside from the path you've chosen to pursue? Or are you going to do your best to overcome those obstacles in cases where those obstacles are insurmountable. Maybe that means going around them rather than going over them. But I, I think you can see the point here, right? And this is, and this, this goes connects to, you know, really controversial contemporary questions. Like I think, for example, the 1619 project and critical race theory. And this is why people like Ismail and Bob Woodson also, um, who, who may disagree with the Acton Institute and FBI on certain political questions, but Bob, Bob Woodson is, is down there on the front lines as people like Ismail are, and they see the negative impact that, that this ideologically driven stuff like the 1619 Project has on actual black Americans. You know, if we're, if we're trying to educate um, black students in American schools, in a way that doesn't disempower them, but instead empowers them to be successful in a society that maybe there's some prejudice and racism that still exists, but nonetheless, we want to empower them to be successful and not the opposite. Uh, the way you do that is not to ingrain in them, inculcate in them the idea that society is so totally and structurally racist that it's impossible to succeed as a black person in America in the 21st century. That's not the message you want to send. I mean, for one, I don't think it's the truth, right? Ismail doesn't think it's the truth. Bob Woodson doesn't think it's the truth. John Sibley Butler, the other contributor to this collection, he doesn't think it's the truth. But it's also just a really bad strategy if you're trying to, to bring about a success or make possible success um, for this group of, uh, of currently disempowered or, or marginalized um, young people who were, were trying to improve their prospects 
in, in American life in the 21st century. So you mentioned John Sibley Butler, and uh, his his chapter was very interesting to me, uh, in part because it also combined a historical element. And, and like you, I, I definitely uh, gravitate towards, towards that sort of an approach. Uh, but he talks about uh, the group economy and, and silver rights. Uh, and again, it's, it's a bit of a, he highlights the contrast of different approaches. And in fact, in a lot of ways between North and South, and maybe not what a lot of readers or listeners might expect. Uh, what does he mean by the group economy? And um, what did that look like? And what might that look like uh, in the present and future uh, for all Americans, but in particular for, for non-white Americans uh, who, who do experience racism on a you know, regular basis, who do look around and they, they see narratives of people saying, look, the, the cards in the deck are all stacked against you. Um, what are the lessons that can be learned uh, from this, this tradition? Yeah, so this follows perfectly upon the, the discussion that we just had, and, and that is, so where do we go from here? How do we help people succeed in this environment, environment that, that may well be racist or, you know, retain some, uh, some uh, rudiments of racism in it and probably will to the end of time if we're being realistic. So, so what do we do in the face of that situation? And John Butler approaches this as a historian slash sociologist. Um, so not really looking at political, not really looking at the policy questions per se, but he's saying, if we look at this throughout history, black people, yes, but also other, all other sorts of immigrant groups, um, ethnic groups, uh, groups that have been marginalized or discriminated against in various societies in the United States and elsewhere, where do we see these folks succeeding? What are, what are the phenomena that enable them to succeed? And so he uh, draws this basic distinction between two approaches, one, the group economy, as you mentioned, the other one, the factory economy. So the group economy consists of people who build small businesses primarily. Um, they sort of create their own ecosystem uh, within which they can succeed and get ahead, at least modestly, economically, even if the surrounding culture is largely hostile uh, to, to them for whatever reason, be that race or ethnicity or immigration status, whatever the case may be. And so they find a way to succeed within this group within which they find themselves. So that's what he means by group economy. So you see this, I mean, all over the place. This would be Chinatowns, right, where, where Chinese immigrants are, are building restaurants. It would be um, black business districts. If we're talking about the African-American experience, uh, probably Tulsa is the most famous one. Now, Tulsa mm -hmm. was is famous because it, you know, it ended in being burned down. But as, as John points out, um, it was also rebuilt. Mm. Everybody knows about it's being burned down. They don't know that it was a lot of people don't know that it was rebuilt. And they also don't know that there were lots of other black business districts like Tulsa all over the country. And uh, so this was a way for blacks to, to get ahead, even within uh, a society that was much more racist or systematically discriminative than it is now. And this is set up in juxtaposition to the factory economy. And the factory economy is immigrants or uh, under the case we're looking at specifically, you know, black migrants from the south to the north trying to get ahead by becoming employees of 
big businesses. Mm-hmm. Quintessential example for you guys there in Michigan is Detroit and the automobile industry, right? Mm-hmm. And lots of blacks came north from the south to be employed in uh, car factories. And that was very successful for a time. Many blacks got ahead economically, entered the middle class by being employed by you know, Chrysler, Ford, GM. But the problem is, and this is what uh, John Butler points out, the problem is that that's very much dependent on two things, on, on the whims of those who are in charge of these businesses, these big businesses for one thing, but also on econo- the economic wins. And so if the big three start to falter because of Japanese competition or whatever the case may be, um, then where do these employees go? And you know, we saw that happen in Chicago and Detroit and New York and other big um, American cities with large black populations. These blacks are not well equipped to adapt to an economy that is adjusting rapidly. Well, and, and no one in Detroit and Flint from what I can tell, was very well equipped uh, for what came about there. Um, no, that's right. Exactly. Here, here's, here's the other dimension of the group economy part of it. Part of that ecosystem that I mentioned is not just entrepreneurship and building businesses. It's also education. There's a, high, there's a heavy focus on education as a way to help the next generation you know, go farther up the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and that's something that you don't see emphasized as much in the factory economy. And so, uh, again, John Butler points out this is the case, especially in um, the American South. There's lots of historically black colleges and universities that are founded throughout the South, uh, kind of using the, the these small business ecosystems as their springboard. There are these uh, black colleges and universities where blacks can be admitted and can be educated. Um, whether or not white universities will let them in, right? They can still be educated at the higher education level, even if there's segregation in the University of Alabama or the University of Mississippi, because they have their own black colleges and universities. So obviously segregation is not ideal. And John Butler totally agrees with that. But what his point is that there, there are way, there are better and there are worse ways uh, to go about trying to build an economic foundation not only in the United States, but this seems to be true across a lot of different nations and cultures. Um, And that's why he says, let's focus our attention on building up something like the group economy rather than the factory economy, because in the long term, this is what's going to be more helpful. So switching gears a little bit, uh, one of the things that's caught the most headlines, I'd say, in the last five years, uh, beginning with uh, the fatal shooting of Michael Brown uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, by a police officer, a young black man. He was 18 years old, in fact. Um, and it seems, you know, every few months there's there's another in- instance. Eric Garner, very soon after, um, strangled to death by a New York City police officer. He was selling cigarettes on the street. That was his suspected crime. Um, and you can go on and on and on uh, until, of course, last year, George, George Floyd and, and the huge movement and outcry that came of that. And one of the rallying cries, the the consistent um, mottos or um, yes yeah, slogans of the movement is Black Lives Matter. Often on social media with the hashtag. Um, and I I was very uh, refreshed to see there's uh, a very clear distinction drawn between uh, there's uh, the motto or the the slogan and then there's an actual organization. 
and these are not the same thing. So how would you distinguish between Black Lives Matter as a movement or as a, uh, a rallying cry and Black Lives Matter, the organization? Right. Ismail has done great work on this. There's a chapter in the book about it. He's also written elsewhere on this subject, and he's really done his research um, on the organization, the movement, and also all of the, I guess you could say, ideological background of it. So he actually, you, you mentioned the distinction between the slogan or the proposition, as Ismail calls it, and the organization. He would make another distinction yet, that is between the proposition of the organization and also the larger movement. So there's a specific organization called Black Lives Matter, yes. founded in 2013, Patrice Kohler's and others. Um, so that that's what Ismail means by the organization, this particular Black Lives Matter organization. So the proposition, first of all, we'll take each of these in turn. The proposition, um, simply Black Lives Matter as a statement, as a kind of, uh, you might say, grammatical or logical statement, right? Um, nothing wrong with it. Nothing inherently wrong with it. This was what Ismail says as a statement itself. It's true. Black lives do matter. Now, it can be even the slogan itself can be misused or misunderstood to imply that others, those who aren't black, are somehow not as deserving of protection and respect. Obviously, you know, we wouldn't agree with that. I don't think most people would agree with that. So in and of itself, really not much problem with the proposition. Now, the organization, so the specific group founded in 2013, that is, you might say, at the center of the movement, um, that's another question because they're using the slogan in a particular way. And Ismail using primarily examining their own website, um, but also other public statements, as you intimate, BLM was much in the news over the last few years. And so there's lots of public material we can draw on. Um, Ismail sees this as fundamentally a Marxist group in its ideology. Um, well, it should be and, said that's not a pejorative. Like they've, the founders have explicitly referred to themselves as Marxists. Right, exactly. So I, right. I want to so, be clear on that. Yes, right. So it, it might be a pejorative to the Acton audience, but <laughs> increasingly yeah, sure. maybe maybe not pejorative uh, to to a larger number of Americans. But in any case, right, Marxist meaning um, they're drawing on the writings of Karl Marx and the analysis, the 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 sociology and the philosophy of uh, Karl Marx and his analysis of capitalist systems and social systems and political systems and all of that kind of thing. Uh, so really a, a manifestation or a, a concrete um, uh, instantiation of critical race theory. That's the way Black Lives Matter, this particular organization, sees itself. Uh, they see American society, or maybe they would say Western society more generally, as fundamentally corrupt uh, at its foundation and needing to be overturned in the way that that uh, Karl Marx advocated. Um, it's fundamentally corrupt. Now, now Marx, of course, used class as his as his basic uh, unit of analysis, right? So the kind of revolution that was needed was a revolution of the proletariat mm -hmm. over the bourgeois or over the elite. Um, for Black Lives Matter or for critical race theory, they're shifting that a bit so that race becomes the unit of analysis. It's the same kind of problem. There's still the oppressed and the op oppressors but instead of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, it is it's people of color or it's black people who are the oppressed 
and white people who are the oppressors. And so there's no, if you look at it in those terms, there's no uh, compromise that's possible. There's no incremental, incremental reform is not the answer. The answer is revolution. And for many of these folks, uh, what that means is violent revolution. It's a power struggle. That's the only way the problem of race is going to be solved is by uh, a victory in a violent struggle uh, between black and white. That's not a very <laughs> uh, positive, optimistic, or Christian view of things, um, but that really seems to be uh, where the organization is coming from. So then third, finally getting to the, the third piece of this uh, distinction, the movement, mm -hmm. which is if, if you look at uh, the organization or other uh, movement materials that go under that name, they'll often talk about themselves as a decentralized movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true in some respect. And so you can have all kinds of different uh, people using the slogan, even organizations that are attached to uh, the words themselves, Black Lives Matter, that aren't necessarily, don't necessarily share the Marxist ideology, or at least are certainly not deliberately trying to apply, you know, Marxist revolutionary principles within contemporary America. That's not what they're about. Um, but they're connected more or less closely. They're connected in some way um, to the group that is at the center of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so we especially saw this, you know, with all of the incidents that you talked about and that you mentioned um, when Black Lives Matter became very popular and sporting the slogan became, became very popular. Lots and lots of people who maybe had never been involved in the civil rights movement in any significant way in the past became attached to this expression of the civil rights movement. Um, and so they, they could be considered to be part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but they're not really part of the organization that's at the center. They're more at the periphery. Yeah, I've noticed in in my own experience, and I'm, I'm a, a little bit younger, although I, I'm not so young anymore, but I'm, I'm a millennial, uh, which means I'm almost 40. Um, and uh, I, I've noticed that there, there tends to be some disconnect, and that's why I, I wanted to highlight this, and that some people will say, well, what is this? And then they'll Google it, and they'll find the organization, and they'll say, oh, boy, I don't want to have anything to do with that, right? Um, but I see people using it, and it's, you know, you can't control a hashtag is kind of my, my thought, is that there's a lot of people that are just saying, hey, something is wrong here, and we want things to get better. And that's the means they've chosen to do it, and unfortunately, you know, perhaps it's... Um, originates from and is sometimes still connected with um, this broader organization. But uh, I think there's just a lot of people that are just using it like they would use any any other sort of, you know, slogan of protest. And uh, maybe that would be a way to kind of cool down some of the partisan reaction uh, that we so often get. And of course, it's not helped by our politicians. You know, I, I remember... Uh, you know, basically every single Democratic politician had to go down the line at one of the debates and do Black Lives Matter? Yes, they, Black Lives You know, they do. <laughs> right. It's great. But it's just like it's a strange sort of thing that they were all kind of, you know, checking that box. Um, and then you look at, well, what what sort of policies or what sort of, you know, vision do they have? And they might not really have had anything, you know, <laughs> um, that yeah. relates to, to, to issues of, of uh, black communities at all. Um, right. Yeah. Go ahead. If right, you have so what, to add, go ahead. 
Yeah, so yeah, exactly right. So what we need is a process of discernment here, right? And the Acton Institute is very well acquainted with this because this was this was at the center of, of, of what Acton was doing. Uh, you know, Acton was concerned about the problem of poverty, just like all kinds of progressives and Marxists and, and uh, uh, mushy middle roaders and all kinds of people who were not located on the political right were concerned with poverty. And Acton said, that's good that you're concerned with poverty. We want to take that. We want to take those intentions. We want to take those concerns and we want to direct them in a way that's actually going to help the problem. We're really concerned with results, with what are the effects of policies, the un unintended consequences, right? Yeah. And so I think we're looking at something very similar here. Uh, Black Lives Matter is, uh, this is an important proposition. It's an important idea. Uh, we don't want to undercut that. We want to take those intentions and we want to say, all right, let's, let's promote racial harmony in this country. Let's promote equity for black people, for all people who are discriminated against, who have been left behind in American society. That's a great thing. Let's work on that together. But let's think about whether the Black Lives Matter movement, or at least, or especially this organization at its center that gets most of the press, and that seems to be pulling at least some of the strings in the background, let's see if that's the best method for accomplishing this common aim, uh, you know, that, that we, that we want to reach together. So very practically speaking, if, if you're looking for something different for a different way forward, I mean, the Acton Institute's a good place to go the freedom and virtue Institute. There's also an organization, uh, founded specifically. And Bob Woodson was involved in this 1776 unites the 1776 project. This is dedicated to the same kinds of themes, the same kinds of problems, uh, but is going about them in what I would consider to be a much more productive fashion. So if you share these kinds of concerns, but are looking for something that uh, that is more in line with the American constitutional tradition, with Judeo-Christian principles and with all the rest and with, with reality, actually, uh, to be honest, um, then 1776 might be uh, some an alternative to look at. So relatedly, uh, the book ends with uh, The Way Forward and uh, a very sh short chapter by Ishmael Hernandez. Um, but what do you see as, uh, you know, what, what's the, the positive uh, thing to look for? What, what is encouraging in terms of uh, seeking uh, real progress in terms of race and justice in America today? What, what can people look at uh, whether it be the resources you just mentioned or even just uh, new ways of thinking um, about these issues. Uh, what is that way forward uh, for you? Okay, well, uh, kind of at the level of principle, this takes us back to something we were talking about earlier in that last chapter, Ishmael um, says he wants to avoid the two extremes, and he uses a fran fancy French term, but it basically means terrible simplifier. <laughs> he wants to avoid the terrible simplifier who would say in the 21st century, you know, someone would look back at the legacy of slavery and the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s and would say, we solved that problem, yeah. right? We abolished slavery. We passed the Civil Rights Act. If you're a black in the U.S. in the 21st century, um, you're, you're not facing any discrimination or any systematic racism to speak of. You can vote. You have all the same rights as everybody else. Problem solved. We're done with that. And Ismail says, no, that's not true. I mean, we, we there are still all kinds of 
signs of racism out there. There are at least race-related problems. You can look at, you know, disparate uh, outcomes that we see. Um, you look at, uh, you know, something like uh, SAT results or socioeconomic, various kinds of socioeconomic indicators. Look at the health of family life, you know, intact families, mothers, fathers, children, all of these kinds of uh, indicators show that uh, Black Americans are doing worse than white Americans. Um, and so there do seem to be genuine problems that we still have to address. But let's avoid going into the opposite extreme, which is um, the, the utopian who says, as long as there isn't a complete absence of racism and injustice, Society is irredeemably, systematically corrupt and needs to be torn down and rebuilt, as this is the stuff we were talking about earlier, right? That we need some kind of radical revolution, um, and that's going to bring about better outcomes. And Ismail says, no, actually, history teaches us that that approach tends to bring out bring about even worse outcomes than what we started with. So those are the two uh, extremes that we want to avoid. So to be realistic, number one, to be realistic in our assessment of where we are and what we face, um, but also to be realistic about what we can achieve. So let's not pursue, let's not try to pursue a utopian scheme that's, uh, that's going to ostensibly completely do away with human prejudice. You know, the, the tendency for humans to segregate themselves into groups and then to discriminate against others is probably ineradicable, right? <laughs> now, right. now that's that sometimes that's race, sometimes that's something else. But um, let's admit that that's part of the human condition. That doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean it's something that we're not constantly trying to overcome or uh, surpass or minimize. Um, but it's there, and so again, it's this question: What do we do with it? We don't throw up our hands and say, oh, well, nothing we can do about it. We also don't throw up our hands and say, um, therefore, you know, white people need to be exterminated or therefore <laughs> all white people are inherently racist and there's nothing they can do about it. Those aren't helpful approaches either. Um, <clears throat> the helpful approach is to, as I suggested earlier, to find commonality. And this is uh, what Ismail stresses over and over again, find what is universal, what is common in the human experience and human nature. Um, all people want justice properly understood. All people want to flourish. All people want to be treated with dignity and respect. Let's use those commonalities as the foundation for the way that uh, we're going to strive to treat everyone and to build our economic and political systems accordingly. Thank you so much. The book, once again, is Race and Justice in America, The Civil Rights Movement, Black Lives Matter, and The Way Forward, edited by Kevin Schmeezing. Kevin, so good to talk to you again. Thank you, Dylan. I appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, 
for Act In Line. I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.